Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here, and I am talking to Brian Bramlett. And uh, Brian, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure, man. Um, good to meet you. So, yeah, my name is Brian Bramlett. I currently live in Western North Carolina. Um, I'm a forager, permaculturist, um, have a background in somatic counseling psychology. But basically at this point, what I'm doing is, is leading people on foraging tours. Um, I run a 501c3 nonprofit called Healing Ecosystems. And we are working on some environmental restoration stuff, um, which I can talk about in, in just a bit. Um, and yeah, I've been foraging for, you know, so um, most of my foraging knowledge came from California. I was living in the Bay Area for about 12 years, and that's where I really got into foraging really deeply. Um, ironically, I grew up in the southeast in Alabama and um, was more of like a skater kid when I was young, you know. <laughs> So that was, uh, that was more of what I was into when I was young, even though I lived in the woods. And, and then when I moved to Berkeley and was in the city, I all of a sudden became really, really fascinated in nature and farming and, and foraging and all these things. So, um, yeah, that's basically just kind of my stuff in a nutshell. But, uh, yeah, we have a lot of different projects going on with the nonprofit right now. And, and that's all just kind of getting rolling. So um to talk a bit about that stuff um but yeah right now we're just we're in western north carolina and spring's starting to kind of wake up but uh we still got a few months before foraging like totally kicks off um but yeah but yeah so let's 
kind of talk about somatic um, psychology for a second here. So somatic meaning like long-term or uh, something that's been affecting somebody for a long time or kind of took place over a long time, correct? Is that what we're going to... Yeah, it, it could be defined as that. Somatic basically means body-based, to break it down really, really simply. So yeah, that could be affecting someone over a long time. Um, but yeah, somatic therapy, I got my master's degree in that from JFK University a few years ago. And uh, that's what took me out to California initially. But um, yeah, somatic psychology is basically working with the person's body in the present moment to help them become... Um, to help them have therapeutic experiences basically so you know most most psychotherapy really head-based um it's really based around people's stories talking things through um somatic therapy is more about like bringing people into the present moment and helping them work with their body-based experiences so um what it really looks like is when we tap into that that present moment experience you kind of get someone's whole story um right then without having to you know kind of go through t- talking so much like you really can understand somebody through their body language um so much quicker than just hearing them talk right so um you know somatic therapy is great for working with people who have like trauma ptsd working with kids um people who typically have like kind of preverbal wounds um so a great book about somatic therapy is called waking the tiger um by peter levine and this is kind of an interesting kind of that hybrid between where hunting and and therapy sort sort of come together in my mind um but this analogy and like waking the tiger is that you know animals inherently know how to shake off trauma so you'll see this you know like for example i was working on a farm a few years ago where we had cows and when those cows would go up, you know, every once in a while they'll touch the electric fence, they'll get a little shock, you know, and what you'll see them do immediately is they just shake their body, right? So they have a little trauma, they shake and they get it, they get it out of their system pretty quickly. Um, it's kind of the same for humans, you know, like if you have something traumatic that happens to you, like being able to move it out of your nervous system as quickly as possible is going to be the best thing for you. Um, you know, being able to shake, being able to actually like ground yourself to the earth. So yeah, those are some of the sort of basics of somatic psychology. It's very vast field and, um, you know, we could spend a ton of time talking about it, but, uh, that's kind of the, um, the gist of what it is. So um, you're using nature, I guess, in a sense, to help people heal themselves. Is that pretty much? I mean, that's kind of that's kind of what all healing is, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. some form of using nature, but yeah, I mean, there's there's all kind of branches at this point, and the direction that I'm moving more in with my studies is sort of ecotherapy, which is the practice of very intentionally using nature to ground one's experience, to be able to heal oneself or um, to be healed by nature. And um, yeah, it's really simple things for me at this point. Like all the stuff that I learned in school, 
is all great and important. And at the end of the day, just being able to go outside and put your feet on the ground and, you know, electromagnetically ground yourself to the earth, which there's dozens of scientific peer-reviewed studies about how great that is for our system. Um, we need that. Our bodies have evolved with that ability to ground ourselves to the earth. And that's more of what I'm seeing therapy as these days is being able to do these really simple things like taking us back to the most simple practices that nature offers like just taking our shoes off and walking on the earth um and just seeing the importance of those kind of practices so yeah i bring that kind of stuff into my my foraging class on ecotherapy and whatnot as well um but yeah it's all it's all kind of one big synergistic stew for me yeah i think that's one of my favorite things to do in the summertime and you always feel you feel the effects of it too as while gardening i'm a barefoot gardener for sure um always taking those shoes off i mean what's the point of getting a bunch of dirt in your shoes anyway right you can wash your feet how are you going to wash inside (laughs) of your shoe without walking around with a wet shoe the rest of the day so um that's one thing i always do and you do feel the effects of it not to mention all you know the microbiome and the soil and everything that you actually need and we're so sterile and disconnected from that in a modern day and age and i've talked about it so many times with so many different people but it always comes back to that it comes first full circle to our disconnect from nature and how people need to find that connection again that reconnect to nature and it's really cool that um you know, that, that you're doing that and helping people do that. Um, but it's not only, you know, in a physical as far as touching or, or those types of things, but people need nature so much, uh, the nutritional value and the content that they can get from nature for their body from the inside out as well, which brings me to some of the other stuff you're doing. And that is uh, the, the foraging aspect and, um, you know, especially processing acorns and other things that you do can you kind of go into all that kind of stuff and how you came about to love acorns so much and 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 why you do yeah sure um yeah a few different things there that that brings up uh yeah number one just kind of touching on like the microbiome and how important that is for you know regulating our emotions like so many people are just walking around with a really stripped out microbiome a really like you know unbalanced microbiome and and that is such an aspect of people's health failing so you know i mean like we're so overprescribed antibiotics in this society it's absolutely ridiculous and the amount of people who are walking around having depression and anxiety just because their microbiome has been thrown off by terrible factory farmed food and antibiotic use um, in in excess is absolutely ridiculous. So um, a lot of people are aware of this study at this point, but um, the soil bacteria, one of the soil bacteria that's been studied is called Mycobacterium vacai. And people have seen that this specific soil bacteria is probably a whole mess of different soil bacteria that's contributing to this, but that one's been studied in particular, um, is actually more effective at treating depression and anxiety than Prozac. Um, And there's clinical studies showing that. 
So, you know, just like what you're speaking to Lucas about going out and, and being able to just garden, you know, by touching the soil, by getting a little bit of that soil uh, into your, you know, kind of into your diet by breathing it in and, and, you know, accidentally maybe eating a little dirt every once in a while is, uh, is so important. It's so important for people's mental health. So, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that before kind of going into the, uh, the foraging aspect, but yeah, I guess the, the story that kind of brings it back is how I got into foraging, which is I was going through my somatic counseling degree. Um, this was in about, I guess I started in 2009 and by about 2012 or so, I was getting really just tired of being in school, tired of being in my head, um, tired of doing the work that was involved with just, you know, being a student. And I realized like I need to go and actually learn how to grow food. And like part of that was that kind of 2012 scare of, of this is the end of the world, which, you know, people say so often, <laughs> but um, I, I was just ready to, I was ready to do something different, you know? And um, I ended up going to, to New Jersey and, um, and working on a farm there for a few months um, just to kind of get my hands in the soil. I, I you know, my granddad's a farmer. Um, but I didn't really grow up learning how to grow food or, or knowing anything about foraging, but you know, that intuition that I think everyone has to return to the land was really present. So, um, yeah, I ended up in New Jersey doing a month of farming there and it just totally woke my system up to how important this is for me. Um, and for, and for so many different people. You know, I was like eating really organic food. I was, you know, living, like getting up early in the morning, just all those things that were so naturally programmed to do. And um, by the end of that, I was hooked. So I returned to the Bay Area after that. And like my mind was just completely opened uh, in a different way. And, and, you know, you're walking down the street in the Bay Area and it's like, there's so many fruit trees. There's like, there's oranges, apples, figs, uh, fajoas, mulberries. It's like, it really, it's almost like a garden of Eden out there. If you kind of strip away all the, <laughs> all the concrete and cars and, um, pollution and EMF and all that crap, all but the toxicity, <laughs> yeah, you take that away aside from, and if wonderful. you take all the way, all the toxicity, yeah. no, it's an incredible, it's an incredible place. I mean, um, yeah, the amount of the amount of fecund land out there is just is incredible. So, yeah, to kind of transition into getting into acorns, um, yeah, I've been processing acorns heavily for the past several years, and they're such an important important food for for California peoples and have been for a really, really long time, way before California was known as California. And, um, I was so lucky to get into acorn processing out West because there's such a lineage of people who have processed acorns for at least 10,000 years. Those dates may go back even further now, as far as, um, you know, how long people have inhabited uh, those lands, but we know there's at least 10,000 years of acorn processing lineage. And um, yeah, I was able to learn from some uh, amazing people out there. Um, 
how to do these processes correctly because it's you know it's not necessarily even in the past there's still native californians living today who still process acorn as an important part of their food and um i mean the amazing thing about the california native diet was it you know is that um acorns are one of the staple foods i mean the interesting the other interesting thing about acorn is that it's something that everyone who has ancestors from a temperate region has descended from so people have been eating acorn for a really really long time um there's all kind of interesting studies about that and yeah i've just um i just absolutely fell in love with them um the it was kind of like love at first bite kind of a thing um what happened for me is is i knew as a forager that acorns were edible and i knew that it was a little bit more of an advanced type of thing to be able to eat and forage so i uh you know i brought home my first bag of acorns one christmas when i was back in alabama visiting my family and i brought them home to my mom's house and her first reaction was you know why'd you bring these acorns home and i go well because i'm gonna i'm gonna process them and eat them and she said you can't eat acorns <laughs> and so as as a lot of uh a lot of people could probably relate to when your parents tell you you can't do something and you definitely want to do it and um even as a grown man and so yeah i set out to learn how to process these acorns that first time trying to process acorn was really tough and i didn't know how far to go how much to leach them how much to grind them there's all kinds of really poor information online when it comes to acorn processing there's a couple of really good videos out there too but ev everything i've seen out there is incomplete and that's why i've gotten to the point where i teach a minimum of a three-hour class if i'm going to teach people how to process acorn and really that's not even enough time to, to go into all the details of it but um yeah after that i really set out to learn it and i ended up taking a two-day like 16-hour course through blue wind school of botanical studies out west um to really dive into acorns deeply and learn how to do it from someone who was really experienced in the subject and uh, that's kind of how i got going with acorn um and then from there i've just i've spent countless hours just um grinding them leaching them sorting them collecting them reading about them figuring out oak botany um and it's, it's been a beautiful process like weaving what i learned out west about acorn processing and then being out east um now where i'm at in western north carolina and um having processed acorns into really really distinct bioregions and seeing why information is so cloudy around how to process acorn and it really comes from people processing from different bioregions and then putting their information out there as being the only source of proper information when there's a lot of subtlety to it so well there's like how many um, yeah i can go into <laughs> of 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 quercus you know i mean it could go on forever as far as different you know subspecies right. or especially per region too you know pin oaks swamp oaks and and just on and on and on and on that it's kind of kind of crazy and i could see how that could get pretty cloudy but one of the things i wanted to ask you and maybe you right. know a little bit more about it or have some clarification on that is um i've, I've been I can't remember where my brain gets so uh, convoluted with different information as you keep adding more to it. But 
um, story or not story, but uh, that the oak almost didn't have enough acorns to repopulate itself at one point because of the amount of uh, acorns that were being used and processed to uh, out in California or something. I can't remember um, the details on that, but um, that that there were so many settlers or something in a certain region or something like that, and they used them as a staple because it was a couple really harsh winters or something like that. Have you heard anything like that? Um, interestingly enough, no, I've never heard anything about that. I would be really curious if you find the source of that and wanted to send it to me because I'm always digging through acorn literature, trying to parse out what's, um, what's true and what's not. I mean, just from, just from being out there and from being around oaks, I would kind of call nonsense on that. (laughs) That's kind of what I thought because how many squirrels take them? rat hole them somewhere forget they buried them there and then that's how other trees you know acorns get planted so i kind of call bs on exactly that too, but um yeah i mean and we're, we're still going through that kind of stuff today i mean every single acorn class that i teach you know i end up advertising these things they, they have a far reach a lot of time and people are interested in them and someone you know almost every time someone comes out and says something like oh you shouldn't be teaching about how to eat acorns because the you know the deer are going to starve and the squirrels are going to starve if people go out and start collecting acorns and and all this and it just doesn't it doesn't really make any sense no. you know i mean my th- number one i can and if anyone has this information and wants to send it to me i'd be so curious to find out I've never found any examples in the literature, in the ethnobotany, or from personal accounts. And I've asked a lot of people at this point about any animals starving from people's subsistence foraging for themselves. Now, that's distinct from things that have been commodified and turned into, you know, multi-million dollar industries. Um, You know, there have been things that have gone extinct. There have been animals that have been displaced and starved because of bad bad foraging practice when it comes to something that's like highly highly marketed but as far as as far as acorns go you know on certain years they're going to produce very very few nuts um sometimes you know hardly any in a region and biologists will say that during those years, you know, the squirrels, the the bears, the deer could theoretically eat every single acorn that those trees produce. Um, and so, you know, the next year, hopefully the oak will store up its, you know, reserves and then produce a nice bumper crop of acorns. Now, I'm also just kind of speaking from theory here because no one really knows how mass fruiting of oaks works. People will say, oh, it's every other year. Oh, it's every four years, this and that. But if you really start to dig into the actual literature on it, there's no real rhyme or reason to it that people totally understand. Um, I think one of the best descriptions of it is found in that book, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. where she's talking about how pecans work as far as mass fruiting goes. And it has a lot to do with how, you know, if they produce too much fruit, too many pecans, they're going to produce way too many seed predators in the form of, you know, squirrels and whatnot. And then those seed predators are going to come the next year and eat all of their seeds. So they're basically doing this beautiful dance with ecology where they're the pecan trees are not producing too much or too little 
but they kind of are keeping everything in balance by how much they produce. And that's over a much larger time scale than we're often looking at. Yeah. Um, so Oaks, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, I, I don't really see that, especially, I mean, if you look at the, the amount of people that actually probably forage, you're probably looking at like 1% of the entire population in, in the United States yep. anyway. Now, if you go to other countries where it is more subsistence living, that could be a different scenario, but unless everybody overnight went to foraging in a subsistence lifestyle, I highly doubt that that could ever happen um, to where you could ever starve out animals or any, anything to that scale. I just, I, I don't see it as well. Um, you know, that, that'd yeah. be something that would be pretty extraordinary. I mean, that's kind of like, it correlates to hunters too. Everybody, um, you know, complains about, oh, well, you can't have too many hunters. There's too many hunters on public land or blah, blah, blah. The land's too crowded. Well, it may be crowded at times, but I've been out on public land hunting where I was the only soul around for the entire week because it was either too warm in the season or football was going on and nobody was there on a Sunday because they were watching a game. So maybe the day you choose to go out on Saturday morning might be crowded, but you can adjust your schedule and make it to where it's not. And there's plenty of of room for everybody. And I mean, if you think about it, you know, 5% of the population or something like that might hunt. And out of those people, I just learned the other day, it was like, there's a 20 something percent return on uh, hunters buying a license every year uh, annually. Mm -hmm. So out of those, you know, that 20% and 11% are, are successful, especially with a bow, that's a pretty low number and that's pretty easy to sustain a, a wildlife population with that. So I kind of correlate that to foraging as well, that uh, people really don't have to worry about that too much. Yes. Say, you know, it's a great analogy in a lot of ways, because, you know, as we know from, from just watching history, it's like hunters are historically the people who are actually managing the populations who are paying into um, having those, you know, species watched after and are actually advocating for those species to stay on the land. So I think it's the same thing with foraging pretty much. Um, if more people were actually harvesting acorn, more people would be concerned about the oaks. Out West, sudden oak death is this terrible pathogen that's been running rampant amongst oaks for decades now. And, you know, people are working on it, but there's, you know, no one's really focused on trying to save oaks in that way. What people don't realize is like oaks are a keystone species without them, you know, the ecosystem collapses pretty dang quickly. And, um, you know, there's swaths of oak trees um, that are that are succumbing to sudden oak death out west. And I think the more people that actually process the acorn that take a part of the oak into their body and become part oak basically because we are what we eat then those people will be a whole lot more concerned when they start seeing their favorite oak trees succumbing to sudden oak death and start thinking hey like what can i do to you know make more people aware of this what can i do to um possibly abate this problem a little bit people will talk about you know um the uh the repression of, of burning in California is one reason that that sudden oak death is, is so prevalent now. There's a lot of different uh, theories around what's going on with it, but, um, you know, basically there are ways to manage these things. And one of the simplest ways I always tell people is take some acorns from your, from your favorite tree and then go and plant those kind of somewhere nearby in some open space. And if you plant, you know, a ton of acorns, 
then perhaps 10% of them will survive. Perhaps, you know, a few of those turn into an oak tree. And if you have one oak tree that survives out of your, you know, all the acorns you harvest in your life, and that produces acorns, and then those acorns become another tree and so on, you have undoubtedly produced more acorn in your life through that one act of planting an oak tree than you will have ever taken, even if you subsist on acorns for your entire life as your staple food, which most people are not doing these days. Um, it's extremely uncommon. I mean, the idea that enough people will go out to the landscape and actually harvest acorn to, to harm the population of acorns is like, it's just a pretty ludicrous idea because, you know, most people do not have the time or the patience to process acorn or the prioritization, basically, you know, we all have more time than we kind of act like we have. It's really what will you prioritize in your life? And, um, you know, people are not going to go out there and spend the amount of time to actually harvest acorn and work with it. Even the people that come to my workshops, realistically, like, you know, I think it's a higher percentage of people who are going to actually go out and harvest acorn and turn it into food. But even among them, I'm sure so many people come to that workshop and are overwhelmed within the first hour and are like, oh, I'm actually probably not going to ever do this. Or more realistically, they're going to do it, you know, one or two times to turn some um, acorn into flour and then share it with some family members and um, just kind of have a novelty experience. But, you know, just to kind of answer that question, it's a long answer, but <laughs> Um, I mean, how, I, I doubt it ever got to that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you process acorns in the metaverse? How do you even collect them? Is my next question. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, you'd be surprised. Oh yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so anyway, let's kind of get into the whole acorn <laughs> processing process a little bit. Um, one of the things that's always sure. made me curious, and I always wanted to know more. I mean, I know like uh, the indigenous. Uh, or natives used to take them, weave baskets, and a lot of times put them in a creek full of running water. But can you actually crack the acorn and leave it whole, or does it need to be broken into pieces? Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky. Oh, man, this is an age-old controversy, and I'm still digging into this as much as I can because... Most of the ethnobotanical literature and people's experience who process a lot of acorn is that leaving acorns in a creek is not the most effective way to leach them, nor does the ethnobotany show that people have really done that. That seems really? to kind of be a modern spin on things. Yeah. And, you know, once again, if people have some literature or some experience that shows otherwise, I would be more than than willing to, to check it out. But, um, yeah, man, I recently I posted this in one of the wild edible groups um, because I was wanting to see if anyone had any ethnobotany around it. And it was one of the more like high level groups. And, um, 
you know, like Arthur, Arthur Haynes was chiming in on this and all sorts of different people were chiming in on it. I was asking like, yeah, is there any ethnobotany showing that people actually leached acorn in creeks? And, you know, I've, I've leached acorn in creeks. I've done it several times. I've also had several times where I did it and it did not work out very well at all. Um, what I can say is, yeah, it doesn't seem like that that is a viable method, especially when you leave acorns whole. Um, so I'm, I'm basing most of my process of using acorns off of the ethnobotany of the West Coast, which still has that string of people who are processing acorn in that same way. And this is really fascinating stuff. Actually, if you look, there's a study called, I think it's called the Sunken Village. And I believe it was in Western, like coastal Oregon. And they actually these um, archaeologists came upon this site where it was next to a waterway and people were apparently processing a lot of acorn there and they found these dugout pits and those pits are what they think is where people were leaching acorn um, and the crazy thing about it is that then these Japanese archaeologists end up hooking up with these um, archaeologists out in Oregon and saying hey we have some pits that look exactly like this over in Japan and of course, you know, Asian cultures still have a really strong lineage of acorn eating um, that's going on to this day, an unbroken lineage. And so it seems like they were using this exact same method in Japan as these people were in Western Oregon. Um, so it's really interesting how, you know, we could get into all kind of metaphysical, interesting, crazy stuff about maybe people were actually communicating with each other back then more than we think. But, uh, you know, I think the plants sort of show you how to work with them. And um, yeah, to answer your question, I'm basing how I process acorn off of books like It Will Live Forever, which is by Bev Ortiz and narrates the life of Julia Parker, who to my knowledge is still around today doing acorn processing. Um, she's a Miwok elder from uh, the Yosemite area of California. And basically what they describe in this book is the acorn needs to be broken down into much smaller pieces. Okay. Um, you need to get it really, really fine. So they will grind the acorn or more accurately, they'll actually pound it with these really big wooden or stone mortars and get it super, super fine before they're going to leach it. And then they put it into these pits that are dug out, which are next to streams and next to waterway so they can access water really easily. But they're not putting that, that fine acorn powder actually into the stream. So then they take a basket, you know, get their water, and they put the acorn really finely into that basin in a super thin layer, all right? Like no more than about maybe a quarter of an inch to half an inch at the very, very most. And then they pour that fresh water through the acorn in a really systematic way as to not disturb the acorn. Um, there's a couple of videos that I love to turn people onto, which are one of them is called bread from acorns. And the other one is called edible acorns. And those are both present on, um, on YouTube. You can watch them for free. And it shows these people. One of those videos is from 1933. Um, but it actually shows native people processing acorn, going through all the steps. Um, they sometimes will put the acorn even directly against the mud 
and leach it that way. So they're very careful about how they pour the water through the acorn as to not mix the mud in it and whatnot. Um, and then in the other video, they're actually using a cloth in between, in between the mud sand mixture and the acorn to keep it separate. Um, but yeah, basically like those are the ways that people have leached acorn for a long time in very large batches. And, um, and that's basically how I do it. I, I've messed around with trying to leach whole acorns um, in several different ways, and I've never seen them actually leach. And um, yeah, what was going on with that post when I posted in one of those wild edible groups is like, yeah, Arthur Haynes was saying, um, you know, a lot of times your acorn will go bad before it ever leaches in a creek, especially if it's in like larger amounts. Um, so yeah, I, I have leached acorn in creeks too, but it, like by like grinding it pretty small and then putting it into a bag and then letting the water go through it. But you're still, you're not getting that nice spread out amount of acorn flour that's then leaching evenly. So you'll have the outside of your flour get leached, but your inside of your flour won't get leached. So you gotta, you gotta play around with it a lot. You're also having sediment from the creek coming into your food, um, clogging up the pores of the bag, um, getting into the acorn. Um, so yeah, the creek leaching method doesn't seem to actually, uh, Hold water. <laughs> it just doesn't really line up all the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you're, so if you're doing that then, and you're processing it like the way you do, where you actually grind it up and then you're pouring through, are you literally just pouring the water through it or is it soaking in the water and then pouring the water off after it's leached? You got to come to my class to find out about that. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, man. I'm just messing with you. I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, to be 100% clear, I'm not digging basins and doing that whole that whole process. Um, the way that I do it, you know, I teach sort of this modern hybrid style with these methods and making sure to highlight, like, this is where this comes from. You know, it's important to keep those strings alive. Um, so the way that I do it is I'm usually using like a colander. Uh, this is this, this is the simplest way for the at-home acorn processor to wanna to do this thing and basically getting a colander, aligning it with a really, really fine cotton sheet or um, what they call flower sacks. You can order them on Amazon or whatever. And um, then putting your acorn in that in a thin layer. And it kind of it mimics that that idea of digging a basin. And then I will put my sink on just a really slow drip and allow the water to slowly pool on top of the acorn flower and then drip through it really slowly, basically percolating through the acorn. And if you've ground your acorn fine enough, you can leach acorn within anywhere from about two hours to about four hours, um, maybe five hours max. Um, so it's a lot faster process than is often made out to be, but no, I'm not, I'm not standing over the acorn, like pouring it through. Typically I'm usually letting the, um, the sink kind of drip through it. I also have some systems that I've built where I have like a three rack system where I can leach, um, three different layers of acorn at the same time using that same concept. And I'll often just kind of put that under a hose bib and let it drip through. Um, but once again, yeah, I can leach around seven or eight cups of acorn flour, um, within three or four hours with that system, which is, is pretty dang effective. Yeah. I always thought it was like days and days and days of processing. 
Um, I always thought you had to let them soak and rinse the water or change the water and, and do it again. I mean, it sounded complicated and it's complex and uh, time consuming as try, <laughs> trying to eat pokeweed or something to where it's so many oh, man, changes, it's so many changes that it's not worth it. But um, yeah. <laughs> so something like that anyway. And that's what I always thought. So you're saying you can, uh, if it's ground fine enough that it will leach the the tannins out of it within within a couple hours then. Yeah, for sure. And like this is where the <laughs> this is why I teach the classes on it because um there's some subtlety even to that. Like if you try the method I just described with a lot of white oak species, because of the texture that they grind into and they're kind of they're kind of more more starchy than red oak species typically. And when I'm saying red and white, I'm not talking about the exact species. I'm talking about the subsections of the genus Quercus. All right. So like we have, you know, what's called red oak out east. I imagine you have them where you're at too, Quercus rubra. Um, and then we have eastern white oaks um, as well, which I guess is Quercus. Uh, uh, what's the term for it? I uh, slipped in my mind, for, but um, any, I, do you know I, it? I didn't. I didn't hear what you. I missed what you said the, for what species, but um, eastern white oak. I don't. Um, Quercus alba. It's Quercus alba. I'm pretty positive. Um, but yeah, I'm talking about the broader oak section. So there's there's red oaks um, across North America that are in that section. Um, there's white oaks across North America, and then there's all kind of other oak section. It gets like some super nerdy botanical stuff when you get into oak, um, oak phylogeny type stuff. Um, but point being when you're working with acorn, if you try to use white oak section acorns to do the method of percolating water through it slowly through the colander, you're going to find that it will actually clog up, um, it will clog up the cloth and it will stop the water from being able to pass through um, readily. So I pretty much exclusively do that method with red oak section acorns, or if I'm going to do it with white oak section acorns, then I'm going to grind them not as finely, more like a coarse meal type of grind rather than a fine flour. Um, but sort of what you're alluding to is what I would call the jar method where you put water into them and let them soak and then decant the water off of it every few hours and that method is great that's the primary method that i teach to people um, when they're first getting into it because it's so so simple and it's one of the first methods i ever did um, but that one's basically yeah where you get like uh, you know a half gallon ball jar and then you fill it about one third of the way with finely ground acorn flour you can use the red or the white or the intermediate or whatever um for this method it basically works for every kind of oak and then you take your water you put it into your your jar and you let it and you stir it up really good stirring it's very important you want as many of the molecules of the tannin that are in the acorn to touch the water molecules as possible um because yeah i mean if people don't know out there the thing that you're wanting to get out of the acorn is is different kinds of tannins there's a lot of different kinds of them um but uh yeah that's that's like if you've ever tasted an acorn raw and i imagine you have super is, um, bitter. super bitter <laughs> and super bitter right so right and, and not only bitter but astringent i think is the more prevalent thing which is more of a feeling rather than a taste but it's that like drying taste in your mouth and uh 
yeah, people will talk all up and down about being able to eat certain kinds of acorns raw because they're not astringent, but I challenge them to eat like, you know, five or six of those things raw <laughs> and, uh, and see what happens. Cause there's some, you can't eat a, eat a couple of them raw and be okay, but it's not really that good anyway. It's not like eating a pecan or something. Um, but yeah, you're, you're basically, you're wanting to get the tannic acid out. Um, and, uh, yeah, where was I at as far as doing the jar method, that's what you're doing. You're letting it sit in the water to where the tannin is being extracted into the water. And then you're pouring that off. But the real reason that you're pouring, you're waiting like at least three hours to pour that off is because you need your flour to settle to the bottom so that it doesn't pour out with your water. Um, the amount of tannin that's going to come out is it's going to reach its terminal capacity pretty quickly. So it's sitting in the water for longer. It's not necessarily leaching out more tannin. It's more the amount of water you can pass through the flower over time is, is more, is going to leach your acorn a lot faster rather than letting it sit in the same water for a long time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. So, so to touch back on the different species you were talking about, I think Illinois has eight species, native species of oaks. So quite a few different ones anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think you were saying white oak, right? Is that the one you wanted to, the, it was Alba, Quercus Alba? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. I just had to throw that in there for anybody that was wanting, <laughs> wanting to know what it was. Yeah. And, and just to note, Quercus alba is a very finicky one to work with. It's, I think it's one of the, I really got a crash course in working with that one this year, being my first time um, really getting to dive deep on it. And it's a very tough one because it wants to go bad extremely quickly. It does not have a lot of tannin in it. And um, it's one of the ones that it's, it's super hard to store. Um, you really have to dry it out super quickly to be able to work with it. So um, if you're like all acorns are edible, but some of them are not as preferred. And Quercus alba is one that is just, it, it's a pain to kind of work with it, even though, you know, I had some very good batches um, working with it as well, but uh, it's one of the harder ones. I definitely prefer the red oaks really? um, See, through and through. Cause I, so going back to like actual wildlife and, and species, um, like deer prefer the white oaks. They will eat mm -hmm. white oaks before they eat any of the black oaks or red oaks. And I think right. that has to do with the, the amount of tannins in them that they prefer them over the other ones. And then once mm -hmm. they've eaten the majority on the ground of the white oaks, they'll migrate over to, you know, the black oaks or whatever else. So that's kind of mm -hmm. neat to to kind of compare yeah, yeah. that. But I've always heard because of that, I always thought that the white oak would be the choice for processing acorns then versus some of the other varieties. Then I, I, I always right. assumed that because of the deer, <laughs> but I guess I'm wrong on that, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of people presume that too. And it's another one of those kind of acorn myths that I bust in my class because, um, yeah, it's talked about so much. I mean, there, there's countless articles on the internet. I think I've read all of them at this point or close to it that are, uh, that always say that, you know, white oaks are better because there's less tannin in them. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, that's another beautiful, beautiful thing, like talking about sustainable harvest of acorn is like, yeah, the, the squirrels and the deer and most of the animals that rely on acorns are going to go for those white oak acorns, um, preferably in the beginning. I mean, plus like, you know, in my experience, I don't know if this is yours or not, but white oaks seem to drop a little bit sooner than the red oaks too. So, you know, they're getting after what's good while it's there. Um, and then the red oaks, of course, because they don't sprout until the springtime, um, they're going to last a lot longer. So they can almost be kind of like a pantry item for the wildlife. But um, yeah, it's kind of cool. I mean, mostly what we see in the ethnobotany is people preferring red oak acorns. And, you know, Sam Thayer talks about this in Nature's Garden. And also, you know, if you dig into it for yourself, it's like the acorns that are preferred in California where people have eaten acorn for so long are like, you know, the black oaks, the Quercus, I believe it's Kalagii, um, in more like inland California. And uh, what else? Tan oaks. Um, they behave, they're kind of in between a, a white and a red oak in a lot of ways. They're actually their own uh, genus. I think it's uh, Notholithocarpus, or like one of the only, I think they're the only uh, species in that genus. Um, but they're still technically acorns and, and people love tan oaks and have for a long time. Um, but what it really comes down to is storability, you know, especially when you get into people wanting to eat this every single day. So you have, you know, statistics in, in California where basically 75% of native tribes relied on acorn every single day as a staple food. Um, so it's less about how long it takes to leach it and more about how easy is this to store? Because you think, you know, people haven't had like Excalibur dehydrators for that long. <laughs> um, so they needed to be able to dry those things out, get them into caches and keep them for a long time. And potentially, you know, for a couple of years, even if not a few years, because the, you know, the acorn trees are not necessarily producing every single year. Um, so the red oaks, they just store so much better because of that higher amount of tannin in them. Um, you can just put them out in the sun for a few days or leave them in your house, um, probably more preferably so squirrels don't get to them. And they're going to dry out within about two weeks. Um, white oak acorns, on the other hand, for the most part, there's some white oaks like the English oak, um, which is uh, Quercus rober. And I love I love to use Latin names because you know, there's like, there's a Southern live oak, which is very different than the coast live oak, but it's easy to confuse those things uh, for not using the Latin. Um, but yeah, there's certain white oaks that will dry out pretty easily in different climates and whatnot. But for the most part, you have to get them into a dehydrator and kind of actively dehydrate them or put them next to a wood stove for potentially months before they're going to dehydrate properly. And it's a lot of kind of, kind of noodling with them all the time, you know? Um, so, and then, and then even once they're dry, you're going to have so many that end up spoiling and that end up, uh, molding on the inside. So, uh, the they're not as preferred the to go then, huh? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. You got to do it on a low setting too. You don't want to do it too hot. You can like bind the tannin up in the acorn if you heat it up too much. So, um, yeah, I'll put them in the, the Excalibur dehydrator on like, I don't know, 115 or so, 120. And let them go for like, it can take a couple of days to really get them nice and dry um, to the point of storage. Um, and with the white oaks, like you usually know they're dry because your fingernail can't go through the nut meat. 
Um, and then at that point, you can store them for quite a while and be able to come back to them. Um, but the other point about red oaks and why that's such a myth about people preferring the white oaks is that red oaks typically are going to have way more calories in them and way more fat in them. And like, you know, as a, as a hunter, like it, and a forager, it's just like getting fat in your environment is so, so important to being able to survive and like live a healthy lifestyle. So, you know, people weren't always on this like low fat, low carb kind of <laughs> thing. People were actually trying to get calories, you know, yeah. and still are. Um, you could just go to the, the grocery store and get a you know big bag of wheat flour for a dollar. Yeah. So people wanted acorns that were fattier and more calorically dense. And the the red oak acorn for the most part, you know, given a few exceptions, provide that more than the white oaks. So definitely that's a big big aspect yeah it's nutrient dense foods i think is you know the the proper terminology for it and so many times these days food at the grocery store is grown on soil that's stripped of everything that it needs um because it's not in a natural state and it's grown in such a, a macro scale that you know you add nutrients to the soil because it's so depleted and they're only getting just barely what they need in order to produce to produce versus foraging, you know, and getting those foods. And I think it, it all ties back in and circles back to the whole uh, somatic uh, psychology of everything, right? And therapy that, <laughs> that people need certain things in their diet that they no longer get. And that's why we have to have synthetic pharmaceuticals and people are being pumped full of all of those things when all they really need is a little bit of nature. So, uh, we could probably talk about acorns all day, but this is probably a good wrapping up point, uh, and, and, uh, ties it all back full circle. So that was really good statement that you made there. Um, Brian, because it truly does, uh, it does all come back to nature and just returning to nature and getting the things we need through it. And, uh, if people want to learn more about acorn processing or any of that sort of stuff, how can they find you, number one, and number two, maybe uh, get your content? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, great point. Thanks for thanks for tying a nice bow on that. The last <laughs> thing I'll say about Acorn, too, before I move off of it is, yeah, it provides the essential amino acids that we need, all nine of them. So it's a complete protein. Um, it's an incredible food source. Um, but yeah, I don't just just do acorns all the time because, of course, there's a season for that. Uh, it is fun having them having them stored back to be able to work with them over the year. But uh, yeah, uh, as far as people finding me, you can go to Healing Ecosystems on Instagram, all spelled normally, um, or on Facebook at Healing Ecosystems. Uh, also have a website, HealingEcosystems.com. Got a newsletter on there, all kinds of foraging content. And uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, we're, we just got certified as a 501c3. So we're doing all kinds of, you know, ecosystem restoration events coming up this year, all types of um, foraging events and whatnot. So we're really looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, I would love to um, just have people on board so that they can learn some of those regenerative solutions. We're just trying to do as much as we can for this little corner of the planet to be able to make it a nicer place and uh and hopefully spread that out to people um more and more you know i'm not about this whole like feeding the planet kind of nonsense that we keep getting shoved down our throats as foragers you can't feed the planet with regenerative agriculture and all this and it's like 
you're not supposed to feed the planet. You're supposed to feed your bioregion and feed your people. Yep. And um, so, you know, that's what it's all about for me is coming up with solutions that work here and that maybe we can scale out to other places as people get inspired by them. So um, lots of really exciting stuff uh, in the works at Healing Ecosystems. So definitely check us out. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I can't wait to uh, continually learn from you as we go through this journey. So really cool. And I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Luke, super good to talk to you. Good to finally meet. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the insightful questions, man. I look forward to hearing about your, your acorn processing in the fall. Awesome. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. out there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hawks cave oh that's awesome experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer don't miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at Ooh. that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.